0: A ago. The Podcast Platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert Today, The No-State Solution, Power of Imagination for the Palestinian Struggle with Sophia Azeb Hello everyone. Today, my guest is uh, Sophia Azeb, who is a doctoral candidate in American Studies and Ethnicities at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, she's also uh, a writer for uh, Africa Is a Country and uh, the Feminist Wire, as well as a columnist for uh, KC, I'm sorry, KCET uh, Artbound. Uh, hello, Sophia. Hi. <laughs> um so today will be uh, the first podcast uh of a of a series uh done along the American and Canadian West Coast. We are we are here in Los Angeles and uh thank you for opening this series. <laughs> Thanks. Uh and uh today we will talk about um what you call the no state solution with uh quotes to solutions uh uh in um in the context of uh, the Palestinian struggle. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in relation to the notion of imagination. That's uh, quite often an underestimated uh, notion in politics, but actually a very powerful tool. But maybe just to start, could you tell us a little bit what your PhD is about? Because it's it's actually it will actually give... It will open to a broader uh, field of research that is yours.
1: Um, yes. Uh, my dissertation is uh, entitled Ceci n'est pas une um which is funnier in print than it is when I say it um, but I essentially uh, am looking at uh, articulations of blackness and black identity amongst Algerians and Egyptians in the diaspora as they interact with African American cultural figures um, during the Cold War era so I look at Literary, uh, music, and visual production, um, as well as sport, um, as it sort of took shape around issues of racial identity uh, in periods of contact between African Americans, Algerians, and Egyptians in North Africa and in Europe.
0: Hmm. Um, so, as I as I said earlier, we we're going to particularly talk about the, the the Palestinian struggle in this conversation and um, and. Uh, so far, it looks like we are, we are divided between uh, the two uh, solutions, and, <laughs> and obviously the term of solution is uh, highly problematic to start with, but uh, between the one state and the two states, and it seems more and more that actually there's less and less an uh, uh, even debate about that with uh, uh, the recent, uh, the recent uh, uh, actions undertook by the Palestinian Authority to, to gain recognition as a, as a sovereign state. And far from those, uh, far from this binary uh, 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 choice, you are uh, talking about a no-state solution, uh, and uh, to maybe solve uh, uh, so solve uh, issue, uh, extraordinary issues with maybe extraordinary uh, 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 solutions. Um, and uh could could you maybe tell us a little bit more what you what you mean by this uh this no state solution that gives its that gives its name to the to this conversation?
1: Um yes. I so I think uh as a student of ethnic studies and postcolonial studies and um all the studies uh that one encounters as particularly I think a Palestine Palestinian or an ally of Palestine. Uh, in the academy and outside of the academy, uh, the idea of either a one-state or a two-state solution tends to elide conversations about uh, the violence that is inherent in a nation-state formation at all. Um, So my concern with relying on an idea of statehood proper as a solution, and solution I think both you and I are putting in quotations mm. throughout this whole conversation.
0: Every time we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll say the word solution, you have to visualize the, the quotes on both sides of it.
1: Yes. Um, so, you know, the, the problem inherent with imagining statehood as a solution is that we really need to imagine, I think, beyond... Uh a reproduction of legitimacy uh, as a people and as a nation, right? If we imagine nationhood outside of a state, um, beyond you know a concretization of borders and of a singular government, um, and essentially moving beyond the kind of Hegelian imaginary of the state as kind of the the most supreme manifestation of reason. Um, because I think, especially in our contemporary world, we can see by now, I hope, that the state tends to reproduce the very violences that it was built upon. And so my position um, as a Palestinian, um, as an anarchist of color, and as a feminist, is that statehood is very limiting, um, and we could perhaps instead look to Alternate forms of government governance um, that go beyond, uh, you know, precedents that have already been set. Mm-hmm.
0: And and uh, I think there was something I was particularly interested uh, in um, in talking about today because that's something you you've been mentioning to me uh, a few times, which is that you associate um, uh, these questions of uh, resistance to statehood. Um, with another struggle, which, uh, I mean, it, we, we need to recognize the, the specificity of each of them, and we're, we don't mean to generalize uh, them together. But uh, maybe you could tell us a bit more uh, um, about the relationship you see between the Palestinian struggle and the uh, American indigenous uh, struggle.
1: Yes, um, I think a lot of um, what Palestinians, as particularly the grassroots I mean almost especially the grassroots um, have been looking at in terms of previous models of examples um on how to you know deal with the situation that they've been in since nineteen forty seven uh, are the struggles of amer- uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas and elsewhere um as well as the you know black radical struggle which you know somebody like Robin Kelly has has uh, spoken a lot about, as well as Angela Davis and others. Um, but I'm, I'm really particularly interested, um, for the purposes of our conversation, uh, on comparisons with uh, indigenous uh, struggles here in the States, Canada, and elsewhere in the Americas. Because the movement to sovereignty, and of course, this is, again, this is very general. I'm not an expert um, in indigenous studies or indigenous activisms, uh, of which there are many and many ideas. But um, something that is very inspirational to me are the conversations that I have overheard and some of the examples that I've seen in movements like Idle No More of imagining imagining a sovereignty that goes beyond the nation state, but is still land-based. So it still acknowledges the importance and the significance of the land to indigenous people. But it does not uh, advocate for total ownership or, again, the establishment of more borders uh, to create nation states. Rather, land-based sovereignty and how I am particularly thinking about it um, and adapting it from many indigenous examples in here in the the Western Hemisphere, Uh, if we look at it as sort of a process and a practice, uh, Of sovereignty. So sovereignty is something we do uh, rather than something that is established through conquering Mm. or or borders.
0: It's a practice.
1: It's a practice and it's a practice of recognition through working and and living on and with the land as opposed to owning um, and setting up borders and fences around the Mm. land.
0: Yeah, and I, I suppose that's something that I'm I'm very interested to to talk to you to talk with you about because um, uh, being an architect myself is that whenever you set a, a building or any kind of for, form of structure that that has a, a sort of a, 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 it it is a settlement and we're going to talk about settlements obviously but uh, it is a settlement and it has it it kind of almost inherently denies this uh this sovereignty by the, through practice and we were talking about walls I, I two days ago i was in there i was uh, at, at the at the wall that separates uh, the the united states from mexico and there's there is something inherently absurd in in this in this materialization of a border on a on a map that that takes the materiality of of a wall um so i'm i'm wonder i'm i'm thinking that our, uh uh, I would not say architecture is always a uh, uh, complicit of that, but at least most most of the time it is. So it's, uh, I'm quite interested maybe to hear you about, about this uh, architectural aspect of things.
1: I mean, certainly. Um, in a way, what I propose as sort of an imaginative um, solution has a lot to do with, first of all, my interest in, in culture and how... Um, you know, cultural sort of assumptions, um, but also cultural innovations move us beyond the expectation or the norm. And the norm here being a nation state and owning land and, and fences—things that uh, we take for granted, particularly in the uh, U.S. context, uh, because of course that was the how the U.S. established itself. Um, First settlers in the in the United States, what is now the United States and Canada—they um, they built. Fences around their properties. Mm-hmm. Um, that was their understanding of how one works the land. They first have to own it, which of course goes counter to many, um, you know, indigenous uh, ways of knowing. Um,
0: and maybe just to, to jump in, I can refer the listeners to the the little book of uh, um, I forgot his name, but uh, <laughs> uh, he wrote he wrote about the, the lit, a little history of the barbed wire and how how this little this little tool which just consists in in like a wire uh, making making uh, uh, pointy nodes every now and then was was used to to claim this kind of property in the US uh uh, ver- uh versus uh a sovereignty of the land based on practice that was uh, characteristic of the indigenous population so uh, that's that's that maybe the 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 most elementary architectural components is this, this little barbed wire somehow, somehow that almost materialize the lines that are that we usually trace as architects.
1: Um, precisely. I mean, but when we think about it, that is in itself a completely imaginary practice, like the establishment of, okay, where are we going to put those barbed wires mm-hmm. or fences? Um, it, it's, it's based in the mythology of making a map that is supposed to somehow concretize um, illusions of where, you know, what I own and what you own and where we are allowed to then move, right? So mobility is greatly affected in a way by this completely imaginative uh, establishment of squiggly lines on a piece of paper Mm -hmm. or yet through, uh, uh, the physical manifestation of, of barbed wire fences and so on. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I think a lot of this for me was, um, influences my thinking on Palestine. Um, because I had, I was, I have the good fortune of knowing many, uh, remarkable indigenous, um, scholars and activists, uh, here in the States and in Canada. Um, but of course, you know, I want to specify again that these are not equal, uh, you know, these are very, as you mentioned, very particular and specific, uh, instances of settler colonialism. And we can't forget, um, that Palestinian refugees themselves, uh, in, in the U S and Canada are settlers too, you know, not, Willfully in many circumstances, but we always need to be aware of our own participation in the, you know, U.S. and Canadian settler states. So this is uh, what makes I think imagination, particularly through through cultural practice, um, you know, even the aesthetics of something like architecture mm. or how we how we manipulate the land um, or use the land, very interesting. And and I see culture and aesthetics. Um, as deeply political um, practices that can greatly influence our our political imaginings of alternate future, especially for Palestinian sovereignty.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, I suppose it gives me a, an easy transition to maybe jump right into the, the Palestinian struggle and how we... A very shallow reading of it would would consist in a strict, uh, 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 in a strict binary antagonism between uh, the Israeli army uh, that occupies the territory and the Palestinians. But actually, part of the struggle consists in also saying, uh what are the problems that are internal to the Palestinian society. And even though they're internal, obviously there, I mean, there's always an aspect of it that goes back to the to the occupation itself. But um, Right now, one of the main problems of the Palestinian society is uh, sort of the emergence uh, uh, in Ramallah, in particular, of a, of a of a bourgeoisie, of a Palestinian bourgeoisie. That um, uh, if we are if we are uh, if we are gentle with them, we would say <laughs> they're they're being indifferent to the occupation. If we are not so gentle, we would say they actually take advantage of the of the mm-hmm. occupation to to, to produce uh, 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 more wealth. And there's something that is particularly interested, interesting in in this uh, in this problem. It has it has a strong architectural repercussions that that actually sh- shows how much architecture is is influenced by those kind of processes of, of uh, of uh, colonization. And uh, the other day, I showed you two pictures, uh, uh, challenging you to tell me which which one of those two settlements was an Israeli settlement in the West Bank, and which one was a new, new newly established settlement of Palestinian bourgeoisie in, in north of Ramallah, in, near near Birzeit University. Uh, and uh, and obviously, no one can make the difference because they look exactly alike. So that that shows how much there uh, is there is a. There is a, a a correlation in in this kind of behavior with with something like architecture and the use of land in general isn't it
1: yes i mean i i have a dear friend who teaches law at birzeit and um you know i i i love her dispatches on like on facebook and via email um because she is one of the few people i know who's currently in palestine that is you know, obviously is critiquing the occupation itself um, and, and the Israeli actors in the occupation, particularly the um, Israeli occupation forces. But um, it set, spends an equal amount of time and energy, um, you know, really critiquing that that newly um, emerged, or I guess not newly emerged, but perhaps like more visible. I had never seen the photos mm-hmm. you showed me before. I really did not know about these settlements and it was eerie <laughs> to say the least. Um, to see what Palestinian, like this Palestinian middle or upper class are are building on the land. Um, But, you know, she's, she, like many other Palestinians, I think of, I I don't want to make it a generational thing, because it's not, but I I guess I tend to move in circles that are coming from younger generations, Mm -hmm. so are maybe more uh, visible on social media and on the internet uh, in terms of discussing this, but um are really concerned with the role that um you know you, this this new Palestinian bourgeoisie is is playing uh in sort of enhancing or you know yes i think benefiting from in in some ways from the occupation it's it's kind of the same uh, mindset or a similar mindset uh, as as our neighboring countries uh in the region that that view Palestinian refugees in particular as, uh, you know, unwanted. Yeah, yeah, per- yeah, precisely. You know, they, they treat them as the United States treats its, you know, most vulnerable members, which mm-hmm. is with barely contained contempt. Um, and it's interesting to me because Palestinians, Palestine and Palestinians remain uh, in most, like, context in in the Arabic speaking world, but elsewhere, um, as sort of an example of something that, you know, really brings us together, you know, what about Palestine, what about the people, and yet you'll see uh, the governments of Lebanon and Jordan and and what have you, uh, using Palestine as a rallying cry, while, of course, not doing much for Palestinians at Mm -hmm. home. Um, And so I think that the, the sort of this bourgeoisie that you point out in Palestinian society is an outpost of this. It is very much a... Um, actually, I'm going to share an anecdote. Okay. It, I, it was something... I, it was after the first time we had met in Los Angeles. Uh, there was a conference at USC recently on the uh, religion, democracy, and the Arab awakening. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be in attendance, and it was a very interesting conference convened here. And uh, the keynote speaker was Tariq Ramadan, Um who I admire, I don't agree with everything he says, but I admire, Um, and an audience member who also happens to be a uh, a journalist for a prominent, well, a prominent-ish publication. (laughs) Um, It's more of a soundbite publication, in my opinion, but uh, he asked uh, Tariq Ramadan during the Q&A, apropos of nothing, mind you, uh, he asked Tariq Ramadan something about Palestinians play the victim card a lot. And, I, and he's Palestinian, this, this the journalist, he is Palestinian himself. And I remember um, you know, sitting amongst a, a few of my, my peers who are academics and, and journalists and writers, and all of us kind of looking at each other. But the thing is, it wasn't surprising to any of us that that question would come from a Palestinian who lives in the US, mm-hmm. but a Palestinian no less. And I, I think that makes me sad, um, but it's it's also, of course unsurprising that we we have internalized so many of these narratives about Palestinians um, only looking elsewhere to blame, to place the blame and not looking at their own internal problems. When I think the conversation we are having right now, which is by no means the first time anyone is having a conversation like this, proves very much that Palestinians and their allies are really willing, to engage the multiplicity of issues yeah. that that prevent an imagining of Palestinian sovereignty and liberation beyond a nation state from happening. So I'm, I'm very confident in saying that our friend at the conference who asked such a question about Palestinian playing the victim. Um is uh, adamantly either a one stater or a two stater yeah. and would react in horror that I would suggest that i 'm a no stater, <laughs> but i am no means by no means the only Palestinian who would suggest that a state is not the solution, mm. and in fact, a state is merely exacerbating the initial problem the initial problem of any colonial Uh, property of any occupation, which is the fact that we had to, you know, enter into this European kind of uh, idea that in order to be independent, you have to be self-governing through a nation-state, and that only a nation-state can legitimize you on an international stage. And of course, that's correct in many ways. The United Nations aside and the Palestinian Authority's recent actions aside you know the united states and you know britain and france and so on you know they they won't acknowledge a a non-state entity right mm. but i think maybe when we think about how palestine is treated on the world stage despite the fact that we're not supposed to be real people that we don't actually exist and there's never been a palestine it seems that we preoccupy the minds of many political figures around the world so in a way our existence is legitimized by virtue of the fact that people are arguing whether or not we exist all the time mm. um and so these are i guess that's something um of, <laughs> a great aside from the question you asked me but um it is of course not a binary of occupation the occupiers versus the occupied In 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 every colonial context, we have actors within, internal to uh, the community in question, that um, are, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, trying to maneuver their way around or within uh, the greater problem of, of the imperial power
0: in mm-hmm. question. Well, but let's let's talk of, of those uh, Palestinian bodies uh, because that's that seems that's where we're we're aiming. Uh, with this idea of like, <laughs> do, do, do Palestinians exist or not? Uh, well, at the very <laughs> least, they exist as bodies. Yes. And um, and maybe it's it's also important to say that uh, we're talking about land as practice and and the no state solution, and we're talking we're talking about it uh, from uh, quite a, a far from the from Palestine itself. So, I mean, I I would like. Um, um, I, I would not want these conversations to be too uh, abstract and 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 uh, a little bit like we we tend. I mean, uh, I certainly have my part <laughs> in that. Tend to be with like, for example, cartographic uh, cartographic uh, um, uh, assignments and trying to describe the situation through through maps and and sort of disincarnated uh, medium uh, as we often do. But go back to this idea of bodies of materiality and how. Basically, the, the occupations right now uh, affect most directly the bodies and, and quite often, I mean, sometimes in a very spectacular way, and that's where the newspaper seems to care a little bit, uh, uh, briefly, uh, and some and most of the time in you know, a non-spectacular way, just in the prevention of bodies' movements or, or uh, kind of uh, using an oxymoron of uh, normal violence, let's say. Uh, um, so let let's talk about those bodies because uh, I think the the way the way you interpret them is also very very informative for uh, this no state solution you're 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 calling for.
1: Yes, I mean so it's in terms of bodies. Um, I mean until this point, we've sort of been moving along. I guess what I would associate with. Uh, what Akil and bembe Mbembe um, theorized and did up with Skorunyi, which is, um, you know, looking at images like maps or representations or the aesthetics um, of, you know, architecture and, and borders, um, that we understand them as signs, as signifiers of something, um, even while they claim not to be signs of anything. They claim to just be, you know, we're here, this is what we are very clear Um, But Mbembe would say that they, in fact, are very clever because these sort of visual reproductions of either the occupation or resistance to it, uh, they mime what they represent um, and are able to mask their kind of arbitrariness, which I really like, especially when we're thinking about cartography. Um, But I think uh, another... Sort of idea that I'm borrowing from Achille Mbembe is this uh, concept of exercising existence, um, and in in terms of Palestinians themselves, the the real you know the bodies of Palestinians themselves, um, we have for a very long time been overrepresented in terms of our cultural output, um, as I think most. Uh, displaced peoples are historically, uh, we produce a lot of intellectual and cultural knowledge um, that sort of has proliferated even when our existence at its very minimum is, you know, sort of questioned or queried. Um, and so I really, you know, if we look at, we can look at kind of old school uh iterations, right, of this sort of exercise of existence from from somebody like, um, you know, Taufiq Zayed or Mahmoud Darwish, the, the great Palestinian poets who could pack a stadium by <laughs> reciting poetry. Um, but they always, they and, and many other poets um, and writers, they would constantly write about this theme or project this, this idea of their very bodies being constituted by the land itself that they both come from the land but they are of the land and that in fact wherever they are the land is is within them Um, and I find this concept of embodiment to be not only like theoretically very interesting which is also my preoccupation um, but very much a political statement uh, in terms of the issue of displacement, particularly of a people of whom there are more refugees than there are those actually on our historic lands, um, but there are you know beautiful sort of gestures towards how even the violence that occurs to the land, those settlements, for instance, the sort of the marring and the abuse of the land, we bear as people as palestinians but also the great beauty of the land we bear we we bear fruits and we also bear wounds of the land and actually i'm glad i got a chance to write this down it's a beautiful uh, excerpt from a poem by mahmoud darwish ana uh, atan al-Ainaki, and he wrote he writes of the land of course you are my myth and the day, and the clay from which i was created You are mine with all your wounds, each wound a garden. And this is in the context of a larger poem in which uh, we realize that you and I are in fact, one entity throughout the entire narrative. And of course, he's not the only one who's done this. Um, June Jordan, the African-American poet, uh, wrote often of Palestinians and was deeply invested in uh, the relationship that she, as a black woman in the U.S., had with occupied Palestinians and displaced Palestinians. Um, And so she, in a poem entitled Moving Towards Home, which I think uh, anyone who's really interested in Palestinian culture is probably familiar with, uh, gestures towards not wanting to speak of unspeakable events, Um, and this is in the aftermath of the Sabra and Shatila massacres uh, during the Lebanese Civil War uh but instead sort of reaches out to this living room where she and 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 her friends, her Palestinian friends are together. Um and which uh much later a a young contemporary Palestinian poet, um well this is embarrassing, I've forgotten her name. Suhir Hamad, mm. sorry, sorry Suhir Hamad if you're listening to this ever. <laughs> um <laughs> Suhir Hamad um, in fact, takes June Jordan's proclamation of Palestinian identity and therefore her own identity and existence and flips it, right? So they are both, in a way, attempting to extend their existence to the other, uh, in this case, Palestinian or African American, um, and trying to unite, in, in essence, in a way, take on an additional identity, not displaced, right? June Jordan is no less black because she is Palestinian. Mm. Suher Hamad is not black because she is Palestinian. But in fact, to a couple of these and, and lift in the work of existing and of being present and of ha- inhabiting bodies that are marked in a, by these instances of colonial uh, violence, uh, you know, wearing them on their skin so i'm really um just in love with that kind of representation. I think it is as anyone who's you know where it looks at representation in colonial context it's it's not a new idea by any means but i I think it's an admirable way of uh for Palestinians proclaiming their existence and enacting it in the words of Mbembe, uh, but for pa- allies of Palestinians, uh, by you know enacting the existence of their friends, you know, and sort of proclaiming that you know they are they are Palestinian and and so too am I. Uh, and I don't think that in in conversations between differently colonized bodies, uh, that this is a hollow thing to do. I think it is, in fact, imbued with with much meaning, particularly as we see the greatest allies of Palestinians have always been um, in the U.S. uh, context, uh, African Americans and indigenous peoples. Uh, We recognize that our experiences are not the same, but that we have much uh, in conversation and that we have much in the way of strategy to share with one another. And I think one of the Major instances of that is acknowledging the the reality of the bodies on mm-hmm. the ground, but also trying to think imaginatively about how those bodies may become more mobile and more legible if we use language and culture to to make them visible in a way that they are otherwise not.
0: Mm-hmm. And I uh, I think one of the one of the ideas that what you you so eloquently talked about right now uh, uh also gives a sort of reciprocity to the practice of the land we were talking like the, the the sovereignty of the land uh in the fact that there is a reciprocity in the fact that the body uh becomes also a fragment of the land itself and and uh and i suppose if if i bring if i bring uh, uh one uh Reference that's dear to me as well. That's something that I can I can really see in the in the work uh, of uh, Raja Sheadeh who's this um, uh, uh, lawyer in uh, Ramallah, who's been uh, who's been working for uh, at least two decades in the in um, fighting fighting the expropriation of, of uh, Palestinian land by the by the Israeli army. Uh, but he uh, describes in his book um, Palestinian walks um a practice of the land that is uh, that is doing um uh, quite quite often i mean his his house is is on the hill of Ramallah and he just has to leave his house and 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 walk in the in the hills of Ramallah that are in 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 area area c uh, according to the oslo accords which give absolute power to the israeli army uh, uh on on 63% of the west bank um and um and the the way the way he's just uh using his body and using this practice of walking uh uh in those heels against the militarized implementation of uh uh restriction of movement is is highly uh, strong to provide imaginaries as well, which is which is what we we almost sh- should go back to because when when I was talking about the Palestinian bourgeoisie earlier and uh, that obviously the, the the this bourgeoisie being the so- the socio-economic uh, 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 form of what the political form is the Palestinian authority and 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 uh, former Prime Minister, uh, uh, Salem Fayad was was doing uh, in in Ramallah and for Palestine in 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 indifference to the occupation um but what what those uh what this social class and this political class um seems to have uh forgotten in in their comfort uh, that they managed to reach is precisely imagination and the fact that imagination is a very strong poly- political tool so um and and to, to stay a little bit with Rajesh uh, he wrote a he wrote a science fiction book, which is quite interesting, uh, called uh, it's it's only in French, I think. Unfortunately, it's called 2037: Le Grand Bouleversement. Uh, so that's supposed to happen in 2037, and uh, and uh, the the entire region of uh, that goes from from Syria to to Egypt is, is became some sort of uh, 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 unions of the states and and uh, uh, and have trains going from one from from Be- Beirut to Jerusalem and to Haman, uh, um, and is describing is describing a story happening with, within this context, and actually not not having the naive uh, uh, views that we we might expect when when seeing such a such a scenario, but. Uh, all, all, all that to say is that um, there is. We can, all, we can almost talk about science fiction to trigger imagination as well. So, and I, I know that's something that you're particularly attached to as well. So, could you, could you maybe tell us more?
1: Yes, um, I, I love speculative fiction and sci-fi um, for its ability to really embrace the sort of imaginative potential. Um, of of radical movements, um, and I grew up, you know, reading Octavia Butler and and these uh, black speculative fiction uh, writers here in the states. So it's um, you know amazing. I guess when I became more conscious of a larger world of contemporary speculative fiction, uh, that you know somebody like Letrissa Sansour, um, who is uh, I believe uh, born in Jerusalem um, and practices. Uh, in the UK and and uh, Denmark, I believe, mm-hmm. but I'm not in. You know, don't don't quote me on this, but Lotus <laughs> Sun, sort of no less, um, who is a brilliant visual visual artist um, and works uh, makes video and uh, photographic pieces that uh, speak to uh, in I think what we have been talking about in terms of uh, the. The perhaps bad reliance on a nation state model. Um, and in fact, caused quite a stir with her 2012 photo series, uh, Nation Estate, um, which is a, a tongue in cheek depiction of a solution for Palestine uh, in which Palestine has res- been, you know, a state, it's now sovereign, and it exists in a multi story. Building and you take an elevator from Jerusalem to Ramallah and uh, so on and so forth uh, and it's it's very sad to to see this this video piece um, but it's also incredibly beautiful and I think a really kind of darkly funny um, and very apt portrayal of um, you know a future Palestine gone wrong. Uh, and in fact, oh, uh, gone right. I mean, gone that, right. That, well, that, yeah, that's particular. That, that's the imagination yeah. of it. That's that's
0: that's the quote <laughs> of the solution. That's that's gone right.
1: Pretty, yeah, precise. Yeah, <laughs> actually, you're, you're very right. This is this is the the nation, mm-hmm. and uh, in Sansour's, uh portrayal, it's a nation estate, um, and in fact, it was uh, nominated for a Le Coste Alice Prize in 2011. I think, a few years it, it ago. It won, actually. Yes, it, it won. Um, and then Lacoste, the sponsors of the prize, did not want to honor its win because they found the subject matter, i.e. Palestine, to be offensive. So I think uh even though it's clearly a science fiction portrayal, it struck close to home enough that even the cold bureaucrats at Lacoste could acknowledge it's uh, perhaps... Uh, poking fun at the idea of uh, Palestinian statehood, whether it be one skyscraper, as in Larissa Sunsoder's estimation, or two skyscrapers. (laughs) Um, But, you know, of course, it's not just uh, the West that has uh, an emphasis on the nation state. It's also the Palestinian Authority. And, um, you know, again, these... Internal kind of debates that are occurring around whether a nation-state is the best option. And Sansowd, of course, this is not her first foray into science fiction portrayals. In 2009, she has a video piece uh, entitled A Space Exodus, when very much in the style of, uh, uh, literally in the style of Stanley Kubrick's uh, Space Odyssey, um, she is in a space suit on the moon planting a Palestinian flag. Uh, with an Arabized uh, soundtrack from A Space Odyssey in the background. Uh, It's, again, very darkly funny, but uh, uh, sort of goes on, I think, uh, to tease once more an idea of like, well, you know, this conversation that we've all heard before. Well, where would a Palestinian state be? What would the capital be? Uh, you know, this this faux outrage over the fact that Jerusalem could potentially be split in two forever or taken over by either side. And Larissa Sansor seems to have found the perfect solution, which is, of course, we'll go to the moon, you know, we'll colonize the moon and we'll we'll have a Palestine there. Um which reminds me of a, something a classmate of mine said many years ago, which is uh then Israel would of course uh go to Mars. <laughs> um so yes, I mean, science fiction does remarkable work at, at, uh, at taking very seriously political conversations, but also rendering them in all their absolute um, absurdity, uh, but without abstracting them, you know, without, uh, without making it inaccessible. And I think anybody who goes to see Larissa Sansour's nation estate Um, It was actually just uh, included in the Shadows Took Shape exhibition at the Studio Museum in Harlem this year. Um, They will understand what it is. They understand what it means. Um, And in the case of the Studio Museum's exhibition, it was included in a larger uh, uh, exhibition of largely black speculative fiction and science fiction artworks. And I think that's significant too. It crosses multiple boundaries of our understandings of uh, the categorization of peoples, um, and I, so I think speaks to folks beyond the context of Palestine. In in so far of well, you're you know vexed about where we might go and if we might be acknowledged as real human people. So we'll take care of this for you. In uh, uh, by you know, in case taking the elevator to Nazareth and watering my olive tree, which is a potted plant in my room. Mm.
0: Uh, and I think there was another author you wanted to talk about uh, when we prepared this uh, this conversation um, that is not a science fiction writer, that's actually technically not even a fiction writer, <laughs> but uh, uh, the graphic novelist Joe Sacco who I think would consider himself as a journalist whose medium would be the graphic novel, uh, and um, and uh, when we talked about him earlier, we were um, we were saying that what's what's very important with Joseco is that he is extremely unspectacular, <laughs> and even when the way he <laughs> represents himself uh, in 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 the stories, uh, him going to either Cyprus or Bosnia or uh or Palestine whether whether in the West Bank or Gaza, um it, it, the way he represents himself definitely shows well how uh and unspectacular he wants uh, he wants to show things. And this this non spectacularity uh for some reason, we, we would imagine spectacular with the notion of imagination, but I, d- I don't think that's a right bridge because uh, the problems the problems of the occupations are uh, highly non-spectacular in the fact that they are systematic. Mm. And whatever is spectacular, as I said earlier, goes in the news, create a little punctual uh, outrage, and then... Go back down as a, so we we have a, a sort of a regularity uh, in in those little outrage and and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, whereas the violence itself is uh, highly systematic and therefore much more subtle in the way it infolds itself so so imagination has maybe to be also unspectacular to to uh, to go against this unspectacular violence of the system of the colonial system
1: yes and I I think um. Larissa Sansur does that too, as as you noted, it, the the nation estate is is the unspectacular. That's the solution everyone's been talking about. Mm. She's just rendering it in a particular way that you know, fitting with the context of science fiction, um, seems spectacular, but is in fact as banal as Joe Sacco, um, who I don't think is politically very radical, um, but you know, yes, he is a journalist. You mm. know, it, it's 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 the usual stuff. Um but I I really do enjoy his multifaceted under, like portrayals of his his own experiences. Obviously he's not Palestinian. Um but in Palestine, uh amongst the other places he has written uh graphic novels about. Um but you know, he he has, you know, what, uh, one panel in um his graphic novel simply entitled Palestine, I believe. <laughs> um Where it's been a whole day of Palestinians in a in a particular place uh, saying, "Look at my, you know, look at this injury I've sustained. Look at this, look at this, look at this." Attempting for this journalist, they see him as a journalist, and they want him to show the world what is happening there. And he's overwhelmed by it. But then still, even this banality, right? This is happening all the time. Sometimes people don't want to talk about um, the violence that they endure he he goes to his host's home in in the west bank and he curls up with edward said <laughs> and he talks about how he just wants to read edward said and and you know drink tea and relax and so even Joe sacco is uh at the end of uh what is depicted as a routine day um both in the life of a journalist but also in the life of the palestinians that he is among um turns to you know, a Palestinian cultural figure, and I would say Saeed is beyond theorist at this point. He has such deep sentimental attachments um, to the larger community, um, but he just wants to curl up with a you know Pal- Palestinian culture in a way and and uh, relax, <laughs> <laughs> which is not something we hear and, and might strike some as a brusque or, or very you know hardened realist way of of looking at the world. But uh, you know what when we treat Palestine as, as remarkable uh, or unusual, we forget that, in fact the only things re- uh, remarkable and unusual are is the potential, I think, that Palestine has to introduce new ideas about sovereignty and liberation into practice. Mm. Um, these are things people have been talking about since the process of imperialism itself begins, but Palestinians have a real opportunity, I think, to be the first to attempt a new way of knowing the world and a new way of, of liberating themselves, and that to me is the remarkable thing about Palestine and why I think imagination is so important here. They have a chance, and the the whole world is literally watching. They have a chance to introduce a new way of, of knowing. And you know what? It probably is a utopic thing for us to think about at this point, but um, as a friend of mine has always said, uh, if you can't imagine a better world, then what's the point?
0: Mm. And, and I suppose my my definition of the utopia is always to see it as a... Horizon, so like something you need to walk towards without ever reaching it, but you still need to walk towards it in order to go somewhere. So precisely, I I uh, really like this constructivism uh, 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 to to conclude these conversations, so, uh, the the potentiality for Palestine to invent something new through imagination. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you.